0: Lock Talk Radio. Shadows
1: are falling, and I'm right out of breath. Keep me in your heart for a while. If I leave,
2: Welcome my friends, once again to Progressive News Network. I'm your your her news director, Rick Spizak, and I have the great good fortune and honor to bring you a very special voice, our senior political analyst, the
3: has dropped out of the race this happens this was announced just moments before we came on the air uh, which uh, interrupted my show notes taking and making so uh, real quick this afternoon uh, after this announcement i tried to dig up some useful numbers for you guys so I'll be sharing that Before we get started, though, I want to mention that we have some really special guests tonight, one that I'm super excited about, Alex J. Hills, a guest from Wellington, New Zealand, and a free speech advocate and longtime Julian Assange activist will give us a global perspective on the ongoing UK extradition hearing of Julian Assange. She will discuss the global response from journalists, prominent whistleblower advocates, and ordinary people across the globe. And uh, that's super important, super pertinent news right now, and it's not getting a lot of coverage in um, corporate media. So, Hats off to PNN for uh, bringing this great voice, and we also have Kofi Hunt and Edwin Inciso and and who's coming. They're coming on to talk about uh, Super Tuesday and the election, and uh, kind of bat back and forth uh, between uh, a, a moderate and a left perspective. I think that's the way that might work out. And Janine Moloff our justice correspondent uh, will address the shifting position of the Trump bar Justice Department and how friends of Donald fare before the impartial, big air quotes <laughs> impartial Roberts Court. So we'll see that that's going to be really good. So she she'll be here at eight thirty, uh, and uh, hang on for for the uh, for the other pieces. But for tonight, uh, my. Plan was to talk about Super Tuesday and getting set up for Super Tuesday. And guess what? When Pete Buttigieg drops out, that changes the math. Uh, So, but not terribly. And here's why Pete Buttigieg was not going to take a lot of delegates on Super Tuesday. we have proportional delegates, so you know it's not winner-take-all. Republicans have a winner-take-all approach to uh, amassing delegates. So if somebody wins 51% of the state, they get all the delegates. The Democrats, you have to make a 15% threshold, and then you proportionally uh, uh, met out the delegates to the people who make over 15%. Now, 538 did a great analysis of this um, today, came out today. And let me see if I've got a name on here. It's right at the top of their page Nathaniel Rakich, R A K I C H. Um, And it gets really down into the details of each of the Super Tuesday states and how these delegates might be won across the state. Now, what is happening this year that is so different from years in the past is that we have two giant, enormous uh, states that are voting on Super Tuesday. We have California and Texas, and these are uh, – California has uh, over 400 delegates, and Texas is about the size of Florida with the number of delegates that are up for grabs. So it's much less than California. It's somewhere around 300, I think. um, If I do the math across the board, but here's the thing. Uh, They've got a graph with Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Sanders, and Warren. And then all of the ways, uh, all, all of the predictions for delegates going down the list across all the states. Now, It looks like for all intents and purposes that uh, Bernie Sanders is going to do the best in California and Texas. And what is driving that is his Latino outreach. Uh, Chuck Rocha, who is his uh, uh, Latino Hispanic outreach chair is an amazing organizer. And they've been on the ground doing deep canvassing For at least a year in some of these places, Uh, they they worked really hard in Nevada to to pull out that win. And it was an amazing win. I blew the doors off. And so they've been doing the same kind of work in Texas and California, that particular team. Uh, North Carolina is is the, the next higher delegate states. You've got North Carolina, Virginia and Massachusetts. Those look to be good states for um, for Sanders and Biden, and it looks like Sanders and Biden are pretty close to tied-ish in North Carolina, and it looks like in Virginia that that, that Biden is going to um, maybe just come in a little bit behind uh, Bernie Sanders. So. The way that this math works out in Virginia, the way that the way that it's uh, 538 is talking about the delegates, Sanders and Biden could come away from Virginia with the same amount of delegates. It looks like in North Carolina that Sanders and Biden could come out with one's getting a little bit more and one's getting a little bit less. Now, I know that they're using polling for this particular breakdown. They're using polling from... Uh, a day or two ago, and just today we got another piece of polling out on North Carolina, which uh, shows Bernie Sanders surging a little bit. Things are really fluid right now, so you're going to see a lot of that. You're going to see Morning Consult and uh, Quinnipiac and uh, YouGov. You're going to see the big polls kind of shifting around, especially in these states where they don't do a lot of polling. And that's really important for Super Tuesday, because Super Tuesday is stacked with a bunch of medium sized and southern states where there hasn't been a lot of polling. So you've got Tennessee, Alabama, Arkansas, Oklahoma. Um, American Samoa. Uh, so you you get a lot of states that are that just don't get a lot of polling. So we don't have a really good picture of what's going to come out of these states. However, I think that you can say that there is a um, that there is a sociology to the South that is different from the like electoral sociology of the Midwest and the North, the northern states like Minnesota. And Michigan, and Ohio, New York. Uh, So, southern states tend to vote more conservatively, and I think you saw that in South Carolina. So, you saw a big Biden win in South Carolina this weekend. I think that he will probably uh, duplicate that kind of performance in Alabama, and it's possible to see that again in Oklahoma and Arkansas. Now, Where I think things are going to get really interesting is in Massachusetts because the the polling right now shows Warren and Sanders neck and neck in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is Elizabeth Warren's home state. She's the senator for Massachusetts. And Bernie Sanders has been surging there now for quite some time. Buttigieg was slated to pick up eight delegates from Massachusetts. So his votes could very likely go to Warren. And Rick and I were talking right before we went on, there are two, two polls that came out uh, right before, right as this announcement was made and they were, what are Budigich's second choices? So for his supporters, who were their second choice? Who might they vote for? with him out of the race. Uh, Quinnipiac has uh, his second choice, the people who will get his votes. Uh, they have him down as Klobuchar and Warren getting 26% and 26%. And you go down the line from there, then Biden with 19%, then Sanders with 11 and then Bloomberg way down in the single digits with nine. So that's the way it kind of stacks up. you got Klobuchar and Warren at the top, then Biden, then Sanders. Then you move over to Morning Consult, whose poll uh, was was conducted the 23rd through the 27th, and they show that Sanders will pick up the most second choice from uh, Buttigieg, with Biden right behind him. So Sanders with 21%. Biden getting a 19% share, Warren getting a 19% share, and Bloomberg getting a 17% share. They don't show Klobuchar on this polling, and I wonder if that's perhaps if she was just left off the list, because I think with Klobuchar on the list, that kind of changes the math a little bit. Long story short, everything is up in the air, and we have two days until Super Tuesday. Um, And this Super Tuesday is a much different Super Tuesday. Like we just said, it's a much different Super Tuesday than the ones that we've seen in the past. There's a lot more front loading. And according to, just to give you the, the top line, according to 538, what they expect coming out of Super Tuesday is that Bernie Sanders will pick up somewhere around 540 delegates. Biden will pick up 395, Uh, Bloomberg is next with 194, and then Warren would pick up 133. This is with Buttigieg in the race. He was projected to pick up 50 delegates. So those 50 delegates are going to be split between uh, the remaining candidates. So we'll see how that all shapes out. I know that for Nevada, or Nevada, Nevada. I don't know how you pronounce it. I've heard it both ways, and I want to be uh, as um, uh, conscious of pronouncing <clears throat> state names correctly as I possibly can because it makes me crazy when people say Appalachia because it's Appalachia. Just to anybody who's lived there. <laughs> I was corrected by that, uh, corrected on that so many times as a newbie living up in the mountains. But uh, neither here nor there. Uh, we have with this kind of math, where where you've got uh, the 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 goal that everyone is is trying to hit is 1,991. 1991, one, nineteen ninety one. That is the number of delegates that you need to win. The nomination outright, and a um, nominee who doesn't win, a a potential nominee who doesn't win outright, then what happens is you go to the convention, and there's a second vote, and the second vote is when super delegates get to vote. Now this is the stuff, this is the stuff of nerdy nightmares. All right. we all have a perception of the way that elections work by uh, by being people who watch the news and people who, send, who mail in our ballots or who go to the polling place on election day and cast our votes. And it, it's our perception that um, our votes determine who wins the nomination, but... There are some real arcane rules, and there are some, some uh, uh, customs, I guess you could say, that exist within the Democratic Party that make the process a little more complicated. And just to give you a taste of how complicated that is, I've got a clip here from former South Carolina State Representative Anton Gunn, and he's he's in South Carolina, and he's talking about uh, one perception of the way that this works. So, have a listen. A
0: party. The party decides its nominee. The public doesn't really decide the nominee. The public gets to vote for president of the United States, but people who are active in the party, who participate in the party, they decide the nominee. Super delegates are very influential in the party. Also, delegates are very influential. And just because you're a pledged delegate for Bernie Sanders or a pledged delegate for Joe Biden doesn't mean when you get to the convention floor that you'll stay a delegate for Biden or Sanders. That's a process. And so it is a process.
3: So this process that he's talking about is what was uh, worked out at the Unity Reform Commission. And uh, what's interesting about the Unity Reform Commission is that it was a, a provision of reworking how we figure out who gets a nomination and how delegates are, are spread about. This came after 2016. We had a, a, a big meeting here in Orlando where there was a, 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 a big platform debate and uh, there was there was an agreement to create this Unity Reform Commission and change the, the math, the way that the delegates actually work in or the superdelegates actually work in the process. Now um, to understand this, one of the best people I've I've come across who really puts out good insider information on how this whole process works is Nomiki Konst. And she was on the Unity Reform Commission. She also used to be a correspondent for uh, the Young Tarks. And now she's got a new show that I think she's doing in uh, collaboration with the Michael Brooks Show and Sam Cedar. She's kind of in that um, production area. And so let me play a little bit of of uh Nomiki describing what goes on at the um, how 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 we determine these superdelegates. Uh first
0: up though was first, was right.
3: first up just to set this up and I'm sure a lot of people have seen this clip or have heard this clip Elizabeth Warren was asked a question about superdelegates at a recent town hall. And so this'll this will set this up for you guys a little bit better. Position in twenty sixteen. And it should not go to the person who had a plurality. Hold on. That was Bernie's position in 2016. And it should not go to the person who had a plurality. Yeah, hold on. The that was so remember his his last play was to superdelegates. So the way I see this is you write the rules before you know where everybody stands and then you stick with those rules. So for me, Bernie had a big hand in writing these rules. I didn't write them. Uh, Okay. So, so she lays out a scenario there where she claims that, that Bernie Sanders uh, wrote the rules, like pretty much wrote the rules uh, for the, for the way that we do super delegates. Now that is, uh, it's understandable that, that, that people wouldn't understand the process and, and what actually happened because it is really arcane. So here's Nomiki Kant's display um, explaining a little bit more and giving, flushing this out for you.
4: So um, this week, the bat signal was that Bernie is trying to change the rules or change the rules uh, from where he was last time around. That's false. Oh, let me explain. In 2016, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, up until California, were pretty close uh, with the earned delegates, the delegates they won through uh, primaries and caucuses. He had won 22 states, a couple of territories and caucuses on top of that, and uh, they were neck and neck. But if you recall, right before the California primary in June, uh, the AP called it for Hillary Clinton because they were factoring in superdelegates. Now, superdelegates, based on those rules back then, were not even really supposed to declare who they were supporting, but they did, and they're doing it this time, too. Uh,
3: Okay, and she goes on to say,
4: because the actual delegates were so close in count, and they weren't supposed to make their decision until they were actually at the convention on the convention floor, on the second ballot. So, that was the scenario then. Then we had the Unity Reform Commission, which came out of the convention, in which Let me remind everybody, the majority of people in the Unity Reform Commission were Hillary Clinton supporters. They were appointed by Hillary Clinton, three were appointed by Tom Perez, and the rest, eight of us, were on the Bernie side. And there were people on on her side who didn't want superdelegates. We didn't want superdelegates, but because we were in the minority, we lost and we reduced superdelegates entirely, the honor mandate, uh, entirely on the first ballot and they were reduced for the second delegate. So it's, it's not um, 65% of what it was in 2016. So, you know, we didn't win. Um, and then what happened was those recommendations were sent to the Rules Committee. And the Rules Committee at the DNC, this is like two years later, um, after the
3: beginning of the Unity Reform Committee. So you get a sense there, I'm not gonna uh, bore you guys with the whole Rules Committee thing. So even beyond, uh, uh, you know, the voting and coming to some sort of consensus within the unity reform commission, then those recommendations went to a rules committee and they were written up and then, uh, you know, massaged a bit and then they came back out. The changes that came back out were pretty uh, modest. In fact, the request on the part of the Bernie supporters was to get rid of superdelegates entirely. And instead, what we did was uh, reduce the number of superdelegates that would be in play and uh, make sure that superdelegates weren't part of the narrative until the convention and until the second ballot. And so, this is why you see. Um, Bernie Sanders' team, pushing for a flat-out win. They've got to get to 1,991 because if they get to the convention with 1,990 delegates, what's going to happen is we're going to see, we're likely to see a a coalition of um, what's being called super friends uh, where let's say Biden and Warren combine their delegates and they make a deal like you'd be president you'd be vice president and you know if their math adds up to more than 1191 then they will claim as a as a ticket they will claim that they can win and then that has to be voted on um, so that's one scenario <clears throat> that's that's coming out and then that explains some of this other narrative that you're starting to hear about uh, Elizabeth Warren and her uh, strategy right now, because it doesn't look like Elizabeth Warren has a path to getting enough delegates to, uh, to win the nomination. And it's highly unlikely. It looks like she might come out of super Tuesday with 133 delegates. So she's in this for Another strategic reason. And here is one uh, scenario that I thought was interesting. Uh, And let me turn this up for you. There we go. uh, And when you talk to her supporters, they say, look, the fight isn't over. In fact, one person
4: close to the campaign I talked to in just the last few hours said that tonight
0: Wanting
3: the momentum for Bernie Sanders. That is what they are paying attention to. So the, sorry. So the strategy behind the scenes, uh, that was a reporter for CNN. I've heard this on MSNBC as well. Uh, I apologize for the quality of that clip. It isn't the best, but it was the best that I could find. Uh, it looks like the strategy is, is twofold. With Buttigieg dropping out, they want to make sure that those Buttigieg supporters go <clears throat> more, more like, most likely to Biden. And what the ones that do go to Warren, they're trying to uh, deny Bernie Sanders any kind of lift coming out of this. This is a strategy from within the party. Uh, You know, it's a—it's not exactly what we would want to see. It's not the uh, the the way that we want our democracy to work. But it's the, um, like the former state representative in South Carolina said, Anton Gunn. He said, you know, it's really the party that chooses these nominees, and then we get to vote for them in the general election. We've talked a lot on the show about the um, the uh, DNC fraud uh, lawsuit, which is going to the Supreme Court, by the way, to find out if voters and party members have any standing with regard to the party. And so it's very interesting that all of this is playing out at the same time when there is a, a, a very important Court case going all the way to the Supreme Court to decide if if voters really can uh, demand any kind of changes from within the party because the pro- the party is a private entity and it, it it likes to do its business as its business. I think it's important for people to understand that uh, the Democratic Party, which is the party that I understand the most, uh, I, I I see some similarities with the way that the Republican Party is run, but not quite to the extent that we see it with the Democratic Party. It's it's very much a closed system. It's very much you've got insiders, people who make it to be DNC chairs. The DNC chairs want to protect their ability to um, uh, to affect the narrative and to affect the votes. And then you have this whole ecosystem of consultants that feed off of that um, party machine. So all of these people from, from the leaders to the DNC members on down is an ecosystem that depends on certain people being in power. Now, if Bernie Sanders were to win the election the same way that Barack Obama became the de facto head of the Democratic Party, then Bernie Sanders would become the de facto head of the Democratic Party. And that's when you would see a change at the DNC level. So there would be new appointees. There would be people who are more favorable to Bernie Sanders, you know, than, than who are on the DNC now, which are obviously not very uh, receptive to Bernie Sanders in in any way, shape, or form. Um, So you have two ways. There's two ways that the convention, that a brokered convention could take a nomination away from Bernie Sanders if he goes into the convention with a plurality, a plurality rather than a majority. That means if he has, you know. 1,889 delegates and the next closest person has 800 some delegates or something like that then then they're going to start deal making they'll start to deal make either with super friends or they'll start to deal make with um, super with the super delegates uh, so two ways that that can go neither of them are uh, very um Neither of them are very uh, in the open. Um, the prospects appealing of to me, uh, or to people I think who are who are, you know, interested in democracy. Nobody likes to hear this. Nobody likes to hear that. You know that things can be brokered and and kind of fixed on on the back end. Um, uh, the
0: Democratic Party I has a
3: party. Oh, sorry, I have Chris Cuomo. I have a clip of, uh, of Chris Cuomo. I think I might say that. But Chris Cuomo talks about this, this super friends scenario. And it was the first time that I had actually seen it. Uh, and then right after Chris, Chris Cuomo's piece, the New York Times did an article uh, where they interviewed 93 super delegates and found out that 84 would oppose Sanders if he came in with a plurality. So Nine, ten, like that's that only leaves nine super delegates who would stay with Bernie on on a second ballot. So it's obvious that what could change as we go through this process and we get to the convention that things could get very messy. And if you think that the Democratic Party has the potential to be messy just generally, uh, then a, a, a brokered convention could be uh really uh just just uh it could be awful. It could be funny, but it could also be awful. Um I have one other clip and this is just kind of by the by. Um Joe Biden had a big win this Weekend in South Carolina, and it didn't surprise anybody. Joe Biden is a uh, South Carolina is a conservative state and the voters in South Carolina uh, tend to be pretty conservative. He's uh, associated with Barack Obama as the vice president, you know, and, and and there's not much talk about the fact that Joe Biden was was put on the ticket with Barack Obama to even it out, you know, so that the, someone who was perceived as a radical black guy would have this uh, uh, very establishment white dude who was in favor of, of uh, segregation and, you know, worked on, on, on issues that would be considered way too conservative for most lefties who were excited about Biden, but then they could, or who were excited about Obama, but then they could present the whole ticket as balanced. So in other words, Biden was put on there to be balanced. Uh, Biden has had a lot of trouble, this whole campaign in kind of keeping, keeping himself together and, and uh, being coherent and, and putting together, Uh, interviews where everything kind of happens the way it should be, where you talk to the interviewer, the interviewer asks you questions, you answer them, you get in, and you get out. Well, there was an interview this weekend, I think it was today, with Chris Wallace on Fox, and they had just been talking about the issue of Joe Biden's kind of brain fart that he's been having, and so Joe Biden had been, you know, saying that no, I'm sharp as a tack, you know, yada yada yada, all this, and then they close out the interview with this.
0: Wait to debate him on stage. I want to, I want people to see me standing next to him and him standing next to me. <laughs>
5: we'll see you sleepy, Mr. Vice President. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Please come back in less than 13 years, sir.
1: All
5: right, Chuck. Thank
1: you very much. All right, uh, it's Chris. I but
3: mean, Chris, anyway, I just did Chris. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I just did. Uh, yeah, Chris Wallace. That was Chris Wallace, not Chuck somebody or whatever. Uh, and very unfortunate gaffe. Right as you know, they were talking about Sleepy Joe and and a face off between Donald Trump and what that would look like, and he, unfortunately, ends his interview by misnaming the interviewer. (laughs) So, Rick. Yes, my dear. Thank you for Uh, another uh,
2: wonderfully insightful analysis.
3: You are so very welcome, and I look forward to talking to you next week after Super Tuesday. Also, Ah. um, Super Tuesday, look for a PNN extra on Wednesday, uh, sometime around dinner time. We usually drop them around 6 o'clock. So we'll definitely we'll be looking following up to on it. Super Tuesday. Super. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brooke. Bye-bye. All righty. Bye-bye.
2: Okay, next up, part one of Alex Hills.
6: We've made a formal complaint to Parliament now.
2: Well, that's good. Okay, I think my recorder's working. Thank goodness. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you. So tell me, Thanks. what... What are you hearing about the status of the, uh, of the hearing?
6: Um, well, I, I mean, it's been tragic. The sort of um, statements that have been made um, by the prosecution are incredibly worrying. And like everyone is saying, end the show trial. I mean, uh, there's a new protest being called already on the 18th of May. And I'm thinking we need to do one um, 11th of April as well, because we've got one year since the arrest. So it's quite a significant date. Um, and it gives us a couple of opportunities to do yet another big global protest. But in terms of the case, there's been a really interesting development yesterday. Um, I'm not sure if you picked up on it. It's a little bit in the um, alternate media zone still at the moment. But um, do you know a supporter called Cassandra Rules, Cassandra Fairbanks?
2: Uh, the name rings a bell. I can't quite place it.
6: Yeah, well, she visited Julian in the embassy and she reported back Uh, that that he was kept in the most awful conditions and while she had a two hour arrangement at the Ecuadorian embassy in January um, she got barely eight minutes to talk to him Um, one of the things that happened and we've now had leaked phone calls from which really does suggest absolutely that this is a truthful story Um, so what happened was that that uh, she was warned because she used to be in the Trump campaign. She was with a few important people on a DM, including um, Grennell. Grenell.
7: Right, right, right.
6: I understand this deal with Ecuador and um, there's an ABC report which shows that, that he negotiated not to have death penalties, so that Ecuador would release his asylum. Um, and it turns out that Cassandra Fairbanks knew this because of an insider um, who was talking to her on that same chat In Twitter um, and the campaign one and so she went and visited Julian in the embassy and while a radio was on with white noise and they passed notes to each other and face-to-face with centimeters between them they passed the passed the information on that she had that he was going to be taken out of the embassy soon and a deal had been made with Ecuador by order of Trump (laughs) And, um, and basically that information got to Julian, and as soon as she left the embassy, the person that had given her that information got in touch with her and said, you're revealing classified <laughs> information, or she became aware anyway immediately that they knew about that meeting, even though they tried to do it face-to-face, just verbally, in that Ecuadorian embassy. I mean, so it speaks to the fact that it proves that CIA was spying on them, as the El Pay. Um, court case in Spain is suggesting. Uh, it proves that Trump was vindictive after Gillian refused to um, reveal his source. Um, it proves that then they went on the witch hunt, the arrest happened, and we've had a year of torture and gagging and British prison system. Um, yesterday, or the beginning of the trial, apparently they, they handcuffed him 11 times, they strip searched him three times. I mean, it's Absolutely disgusting. I can't actually even hold it together sometimes. It's 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 a disgrace that no that people aren't standing up for this. They don't realise it's their kids' free press, They don't realise. It's just so depressing. But on the other hand we've got thirteen hundred journalists including Edges, Pilger, Tomsky, uh, Daniel Ellsberg of the Pentagon Papers fame. I mean we right. have more than 100 doctors speaking out saying he's going to die in British custody. if We're not careful. We don't protect him. We've got Amnesty finally bloody. Two working days before the bloody extradition hearing coming out with a bloody petition. I wonder if it's about money. But anyway, I mean, it's great that Amnesty is supporting them, but I've been a personal um, anti-fan of Amnesty for a long time because of their um, complicity in some of the information that comes to, to, to the narrative for war. Um, yeah, I, I it is bewildering, but at the same time, I know that their, like, mainstream media, their old media silo is shrinking and shrinking, and that's why we're seeing them so out of touch with things like Bernie, so out of touch with what people really want, you know? You know
2: one of the things that we find very interesting, you know, uh, stories that pop up and then quickly disappear always have an interesting aspect of them, right? And the story about the offered deal to Julian disappeared after the first notice, and other than the, ex- the alternate press, thing is invisible. And since we know, we know for certain, sure, that he has made those kind of offers to other people, it's completely in character that he would have yeah. offered this to Julian if he just lied for him. Geez, where have we heard that before, right? and I I
6: think Dan Orobaka has got to be lying and I've heard other stories about that visit to the embassy which is very interesting and I won't repeat them here because I don't know if they're true or not but it's worth a look into outside of mainstream media I think
2: well I I think we know and and there's already been some talk about the spying that was done in the Ecuadorian embassy by a Spanish security firm and you can only imagine what kind of Organizations were getting access to that information and what, you know, uh, we're, we're on. Oh, ob-
6: I mean, Sandra Fairbanks' call literally proves that within minutes they knew. They yeah. knew their, their private conversations face-to-face, and she was very careful. She knew about how sensitive that, and he's her friend. You know, she's a journalist, but I believe, you know, that he's, he, he and her are very close friends. Good. She um, couldn't keep that information from him. Um, and I'm really glad that she's blown the whistle now, and if you look at her uh, Cassandra rules, you'll see her um, video on it, which is actually quite frightening for all supporters. I mean, we've got a situation where a Trump um, appointee is bullying um, this, this this journalist, and um, it's frightening, actually, to hear she talks about torture being mentioned in the same sentence as her eight-year-old child. It's, it's a real worry and this is Trump bully you know what, he, he didn't get his way and we're just seeing him throwing his toys out court and I don't think he's going to win this but the hearts and minds of the people as soon as they're informed of the truth is it, it, it's just clear the truth is going to come out in the end so one day <laughs> these war criminals are gonna pay yeah
0: yeah
2: okay that was part one with uh, Alex Hills of uh, New Zealand and here is part two what is the name of the organization, or is there a formal organization of some kind that you work with to try to get the word out about uh, Mr. Assange?
1: Well,
6: um, I, I think I did speak about it last time, but it's really developed since then. Um, if you remember, we held that 62-city protest, um, which Wellington invited the world to a birthday vigil for free press, and uh, a staggering 62-cities joined us, and uh, It kind of came off the back of a a viral candle display, which we've done the previous year for his 47th birthday, where we mentioned candles were assigned. And so, basically, um, once we instigated that movement, we had then these wonderful connections just one or two people in pretty much every one of those cities. And so, we had this ideal opportunity to kind of unite all these different supporting groups and try and get them working towards one day and doing solidarity actions. And the purpose was. we really wanted to back up the, the official WikiLeaks um, campaign in London that was going on, which is called CEA campaign on Twitter, Um Their campaign was endorsed by um, WikiLeaks, and so we wanted to hold global solidarity actions. didn't matter how small, but just as many as possible around the world so that we can give out some pamphlets, hold some music. We had a jam for Julian, which I think is going on today, actually, or tomorrow um, in the States. Um, and so, yeah, the, this movement that was born in New Zealand went completely mental in Germany. And now we have a situation where 25 cities in Germany are holding either weekly or fortnightly protests um, to free Assange. We have ones in Vienna now. We have ones in Brussels. We have ones in New York. New York actually were the first to do it, I think. New, to be fair credit, New, uh, NYC Free Assange mentioned that they started doing weekly vigils almost from the arrest so they've been doing it a little bit longer than us, but we got on board and just tried to get as many cities doing it as possible. And I think we've got, last count, about 35, of which 25 are in Germany. So that campaign went completely mad again, and we did 34 cities on Monday for the marking of the beginning of the extradition trial. Um, But also, during the week, we managed to list about, um, nothing to do with instigating it, but um, we managed to list over 120 events you know, in probably about five continents and 25 countries, something like that. Incredible um, support. And it's really, it's not really any organization, it's just us all coming together and trying to connect a little bit. And, and I'm helping promote it as much as possible once I get some city on board. I try and get others to help share their um, pictures from the event or their adverts for the next one.
2: You know, you have stood up for freedom of speech. You've stood up for fair play and justice for Mr. Assange for quite some time now. You've, you're a musician and uh, also a landscape architect, if I remember correctly.
1: Uh, I'm
6: an architect, actually, a British architect. Okay. But, um, in New Zealand, I just work as a licensed building practitioner. I do small jobs from the home, which is what allows me to comment. I mean, having my own little business where I'm not really afraid of losing work. <laughs> um, it allows so you're
2: your employer. Whatever. Your employer approves,
6: huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I did work at uni first when I came to, to, to Wellington. I worked for a university. I published a paper actually in, um, Taylor and Francis, and that's something I wouldn't mind bringing up. Oh.
2: Well, please do. Tell us um, about
6: it. Yeah, well, um, you know about the OPCW leaks, I presume. No, I don't. Oh, my God. Okay. So, um, K-Leaks, um, released probably about six weeks ago now, I'm thinking, um the OPCW leaks. What they are is the weapons of mass destruction for Syria. So the fake narrative that gave Trump the excuse to bomb um, Syria, whether he knew or not, he did bomb it. Um, and this was the claim that Assad gassed his own people. Now, um, several, a handful of UN um, engineers, Inspectors, medical professionals, um, specialists in chemicals—they went to the site. They reported back and they said, "This didn't happen. This was a staged event. There was no chlorine above background levels.
0: Right. Um, the
6: hole in the roof where this canister is meant to have come down isn't big enough for the canister, and the canister shows no marks of making that hole." Um, basically, they—they they said the 40 people dead did not die from um, any kind of gas attack here, and it looks more likely that they were gassed in some kind of space and then placed on the site now the really scary thing about that is that the most likely culprit um, of placing and, and creating those photos was a white helmet, Oscar winning good cloney Oscar winning US, UK, France at New Zealand Fire Brigade trained so-called Syrian um, rescue forces. Now, if you look at Eva Bartlett, if you look at 21st Century Wire, if you look at pretty much any um, grey zone, any kind of decent news outlet, they're covering this. But you're not seeing it anywhere in...
0: in oh, God, in, in fact,
6: A Newsweek article, a Newsweek author, Harry, um, was, was, was sacked because he tried to bring the story out. Um, so really appalling um, appalling kind of situation there with the OPCW. Now the the reason I was telling you that and I'm now having to go back to what we were talking about before uh, oh my god I've lost that frame but if I think about it, sure. oh, something comes to it. I've had about um, because of all this listing 120 events <laughs> I've had about um,
2: and let me let me add here
6: well, four days <laughs>
2: You're a hardworking person. And also, not only a professional uh, architect and designer, you're also an extraordinary musician, and you've done many concerts yourself, and I've heard some of your really beautiful violin playing. Um, why don't you talk just a little bit about some of the concerts you've done to raise awareness of, of Mr. Assange's play? Sure. Um, well,
6: yeah, music for Violinists violinist for sound, a lot of viral tweets. Where it all came from, possibly what really got me standing up and getting on the streets for this in the first place, was Alex Taylor. Um, now, he is the violinist in London. He's actually an Australian. Um, and he has made it into MSM because he was playing his violin on Australia Day outside the Ecuadorian embassy a good long time ago. Uh, Australia Day is January 26th. 20, uh, Um, and so he was playing um, Welcome Matilda in a sort of sarcastic manner outside Julian's room and he got pulled off the street by the untasked violin. Committing
2: music, huh?
6: Yeah, committing music on Australia Day and being sarky, yeah. Um, So anyway, I saw that and I thought, gosh, I can can play the violin. I I can make a scene with my violin too and what's interesting about it and it's interesting about the candles refund kind of movement as well as it's inherently peaceful. Candle vigils are very hard to make look fascist or violent. <laughs> Music is very hard to make look fascist or violent. I mean violin, even when I was playing I don't know if you've seen that clip where I'm playing in the face of the um policeman who'd interrupted our protest and was talking to a random protester and I wanted him to wait until I could talk to him as the organizer. And I wasn't willing to stop my song, so I played in his face and really gave it to him. But um, it's a violin, so it cannot be construed as being violent. So it's less easy to come into the movement, like what happened with Occupy and so many other, you know, yellow vests now in certain countries. You know, it's made to look violent by certain acts occurring that make it look violent that actually weren't perpetrated by the people. And this is a common problem for activists everywhere, I believe. At um, least I'm seeing that. Um, yeah. So, anyway, um, his inspiration led me to get into violin and myself. I did a few kind of fun things with hula hoops and playing the American anthem outside the American embassy and then Walsey Matilda outside the. You know while I was hula hooping or something, I'm just making a spectacle of myself, really, to, to make the most ridiculous image that might share that just might get word out because it's a bit crazy.
2: Now, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, I think I heard that some Australian official has begun to side with Assange, begun to request his extradition to Australia. Is that the case?
6: That's right. Well, more than one. We've got 14 members of a cross-party working group and 20, I believe, that support it as well, in addition, within the Australian Parliament. So, things are looking good. Um, Not as good as some other um, governments. I mean, even Norway, which has nothing to do with um, science, essentially, has... has, has, Well, it has a little bit, too, but... um, They've come out with a statement. I'm just trying to find an English version of it at the moment to share, but that's brand-new news. I mean, so many parliaments are standing up. Geneva's offered him um, asylum, you know. We've got... Why is Australia, and Maurice Payne specifically, SCOMO, uh, as we call them? I think it's cool for him to be, <laughs> to get rid of him, the Prime Minister. But, um, yeah, why, why is it that, that Australia, who actually, you know... he belongs to Australia he is a hero to millions of people around the world and a journalist and a six times noble Peace Prize nominee Um, it's incredible that Australia won't stand up for him, it's embarrassing I mean, I've got an Australian um, an English and, and a Kiwi passport and I have many times thought about earning a couple of them actually I mean, not that New Zealand is that much bettery that we've tried very hard here and New Zealand used to stand up for things but we can't even get it in the media here that this little movement handles for Assange has become global and it's just it's pretty sad. Um, also our um, chief investigative journalist Nikki Hager was actually the second person in charge of that um, hundred journalists that signed a statement for Assange, you know, that included Hedges and Ellsbergs um, Pilger, all those wonderful names um, so he he's actually instrumental in that in gathering those people um, and putting that statement out and yet New Zealand media has not covered it, but what they have covered is a Mike Hosking smear today or yesterday which was so appalling, I have been attacking his timeline
0: <laughs> what can you do? Let me um, ask you
2: what, one more question if I may mm-hmm. um This uh, extradition hearing, uh, is there an estimated guess when this is going to be completed? Is it going to go through the weekend? Is it going to continue next week? Or are they expecting a ruling on Friday?
3: Well, I
6: understand that this has been a week of trial, and the next one is going to come up on on the 18th of May, which is why that's the next global um, process being called out for stop show trial. Okay. This is what so many academics and politicians, even uh, uh, journalists, everyone's saying now. I mean, there's still a few journalists holding on to their smears and their sweeping and all the rubbish that that has been propagated about this case. Um, And they they are becoming a shrinking silo, a shrinking sport silo kind of amuses me that, that, that the establishment put us all into court silos where we sort of preach to the converted and they this all talk to each other, and it's hard to get the message out of our little silos. Did they ever, did it ever occur to them that they put themselves in a silo as well? Of course not. <laughs> they put themselves not. in a silo, and that silo isn't increasing. It is increasing, and they're becoming increasingly out of touch with people as evidence by Bernie. I just, I just think it's so obvious that the AI has
2: acted on them. You know, it, it's so unfortunate, and you point to a really important, uh, if you will, trend that more and more people listen to a narrower and narrower range of information. And mm. when that happens, that is clearly a recipe for, for misjudgment. Because if mm. you don't hear a range of opinion, if you don't hear a range of information, then basically you're at the mercy of whatever propaganda you're being bathed in. And we all know the problem with that. I mean, just look
6: at Russia Russiagate for the sure. last three years, then followed by Ukraine gate We've, we've had such a joke. I mean, when, when the Democrats could have been fighting Trump on war crimes, on so many abuses of, of you know, food stamps, of, of, you know, things that he didn't do that he said he was coming out of war. There's so many ways to get him, and yet... they they persisted on getting in on something that showed more corruption on their side than
0: anything. If uh,
2: you ask. Unfortunately, there are those that would rather have him there as an enemy than <laughs> than help the people in their need. Uh, yes,
6: yeah. Alex because has been apologising for their <laughs> because had so much backlash.
2: Yeah, and and uh, one of the uh, one of the known propagandists for the extreme right basically just sabotaged uh, two different reporters on ABC and ABC's taking them off the air it's a real shame I thank you for the good work that you're doing not because it puts a penny in your pocket but because you're standing for truth you're standing for someone who's a freedom fighter and how that is not the common cause of every liberation oriented person on the planet I don't understand but I want no, to it all
6: overarches everything, doesn't it? It really does. Overarches every concern you might have about our government and how things are going.
2: Well, you know, clearly Mr. Assange and, and Miss Manning have, have, been, have been vilified and have ended up paying the price of the lies that our governments have been portraying. And I thank you for the freedom work that you're doing. Alex, it's an honor to know you and call your friend.
6: Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me
2: on. My pleasure. Talk to you soon, okay? And bye anytime time I can do some more good for you, and get you on the mic, I'm honored to do that, okay?
6: Yeah, just please share away, and I hope you're a member of our Candles for Assange group. We've got uh, lots of action going on in there. It's incredible.
2: I'll send you pictures. Thank you so much.
6: Okay. Cheers.
2: Cheers. Bye-bye.
4: I want to invite you to tune in to PNN, the Progressive News Network. It's live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Western Time. The voice of activists, scientists, and artists produced by Rick Spizak, co-hosted by senior producer Brooke Hines and also featuring Janine Bala, Justice Correspondent. PNN, PNN, the
5: Progressive News 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 Network. Daughters of Isis is the ancestor of aromacology, indigenous scents representing the fragrant memories of our ancestors to provide us the tools of the inner quest, the authentic moment, and to heal the earth mother. Daughtersofisis.com Wholesale available also. Mention PNN and enjoy a free sample from our apothecary. For your aromatherapy needs, that's Daughtersofisis.com Thank you. Before America existed as a nation, working people struggled to better their lives, and that always included women. As with so much in American life, the progress of the early 20th century was equivocal. The cozy notion that the system could be reformed by goodwill and high-minded earnestness had its limitations. One who had few illusions was Rose Schneiderman, who emerged from the predominantly immigrant garment workers' movement. Coming to the fore in the great strike of 1909, she ended up as president of the Women's Trade Union League. There she had to take on not only the bosses, but the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, which at that time paid comparatively little attention to women. As 20,000 women walked out of 500 sweatshops in New York City, Rose Schneiderman threw herself into organizing work. Progress was marred, to say the least, by the most appalling tragedy of that era the death of 145 girls and women in a fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York City on March 25, 1911. The doors were locked, the fire escape collapsed. Perhaps Rose Schneiderman's finest hour was a week later when she addressed a stunned and grieving audience at the Metropolitan Opera House in one of the great speeches of American history. She said, I would be a traitor to those poor burned bodies if I were to talk good fellowship. We have tried you good people and found you wanting. We are trying you now, and you have a couple dollars for the sorrowing mothers. But every time the workers come out, the strong hand of the state is allowed to press down heavily on us. I can't talk fellowship. Too much blood has been spilled. I know from experience it is up to the working people to save themselves. This is not the first time girls have been burned alive in this city. Property is so sacred and the lives of men and women so cheap. Rose Schneiderman also worked for women's suffrage and was a founding member of the American Civil Liberties Union. Like many women labor organizers, she was tough. She lived to be 90. Tune in next time for the light. Okay,
2: looks like we've got Kofi in. Hello, Mr. Hunt. How are you, sir? Hey, Good to hear you my friend. Good to hear you so tell me what's new me uh what's new out there on the west coast
7: um we're just uh all you know working hard to uh get ready for the presidential primary on march seventeenth
2: excellent particularly excellent
7: so like bernie sanders yeah
2: yes i i'm a, I'm a Sanders supporter myself, sir. And uh, Excellent. it's so wonderful To hear all these progressive voices uh, You know there are those That lamented and say it's splintering But I think the more progressive Voices out there the better um, What are you hearing as you're Doing your GOTV sir?
7: Um, we're hearing that people under 45 Are, are typically supporting him. Um There's a lot of people That have been undecided which is usual You know it's how it normally is But uh they, um, as, as he gains more and more momentum, he's getting more and more supporters.
2: Excellent. Um, he has certainly get, done some good showings. Uh, are, you, uh, are you working, mobilizing Bernie, uh, Bernie activists, or are you doing more just generic Democrat get-out-the-vote?
7: No, yeah. I'm, I'm doing it through Democratic Socialists of America. Um, our Pinellas sure. chapter, and so we're we have a dsa for Bernie campaign that's a national campaign that dSA has been pushing and yeah we we're running our, our canvases every week we have people knocking on doors talking to voters, and yeah, now we're focusing on getting them out to vote we're also focusing on getting our members out to vote as well
2: excellent, yeah uh, you know i I have to admit a certain degree of uh, cynicism when I hear that Mr. Judge has, uh, has bailed on the process. Uh, if he'd waited until after the, uh, the Super Tuesday, I would have uh, assumed that everything was on the up and up and I'm afraid it looks like a deal was struck. Uh, now, maybe the explanation really is that he did run out of money and didn't have it, but uh, I'm, I'm inclined to think that uh, he, he's basically bought into some support if he bails. Uh, any thoughts on that yourself, or are you really focused on what um, yeah, the, that's,
7: the good that's, work that Bernie's doing? That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's typical. I'm sure there was some deals put on the table. But, I mean, his campaign was always something that was – he he's had the most billionaires funding his campaign, and his campaign has always been something that has been a sort of tool of the billionaire class and of um, people who didn't want Bernie to win. To push, and I think they're seeing that he's not performing as well as they'd like. And I think also people are looking at South Carolina to see if he could build a broad coalition. That's what his campaign is saying. Um, and so they're saying that that he kind of pulled out for that. But yeah, everybody, all of the candidates except for Bernie, from what I've heard, are pretty cash strapped. Um, you know, Warren, they're saying she's staying in because she got that infusion of like 14 million from some mystery donors in the pack. Um, you know, Biden was on life support. I mean, he skipped New Hampshire and Nevada uh, because he knew that he had, if he didn't win in South Carolina, um, then, then he had no chance whatsoever. And he, I, I, if Biden would have even gotten second place last night, there's a good chance that he would be spending his campaign as well right now.
2: You know, it, uh, it, it seems to me that from so many of the more conservatives that uh, the, the cry of any blue will do, seem to kind of fall right off when it comes to Senator Sanders.
7: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, I don't 100% understand it. I feel like there's a movement, right, a left movement that's been going on for a long time. Bernie's been a a champion for a long time. Since 2016, he's become probably the top leader of the left in the United States. But the thing is that – a lot of the people that you might see, like Warren supporters, who a lot of them became super active after Trump was elected, um, I don't really feel like they feel like he's kind of one of them, right? He's not like an indivisible type. He's not like a Women's March type. He's he's, he's, he's someone more from an an older guard of the left that there's a tenor of people that, uh, like working-class people, that, that, that appeals to them. But um, it's not the same backing that a lot of these people come from. It's not the same sort of crop, right? Um, so a lot of them, yeah, I think they would prefer like a woman president. I think they prefer um, these other dynamics. I think they look at him, and it's not even about that they disagree with what he's, he's saying. I think that they, they kind of disagree with what they think that he represents. Um, and I mean, I disagree with them, but I think that's where their frustration But I can tell you in the past few days, I've had a lot of Warren supporters telling me that like if she doesn't perform well um, on Tuesday, then they're going to back Bernie.
2: Oh, that's nice to hear. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I hear, uh, I hear from a lot of Bernie supporters. I hear from a lot of, uh, the Senator Warren supporters. Uh, I have yet, uh, other than, I guess, I guess I have heard a handful, but nothing like the volume of, of, uh, Warren and, uh, Sanders supporters. There's been a sprinkling of Biden and, uh, uh even a sprinkling of, uh, of uh, Bloomberg, um, but, you know, money speaks quite loudly, it seems.
7: Yeah, the, the whole Bloomberg, anyone who supports Bloomberg is basically supporting uh, an election that's bought and sold. And there's an idea that they have that because Bloomberg is a billionaire and Trump is a billionaire, that Bloomberg's the only one that could be Trump. But that doesn't match up to reality. The truth is that Trump has never really performed as a strong fundraiser. He had less money than Hillary Clinton. If you take away his PAC support money, Um, he's raised less money than Bernie this time around. The thing is that is he going to have a lot of money that's going to be thrown in his direction? Sure. The thing is that even though Bernie won't take PAC money, the PAC money will still exist. Unions will have their PACs. These progressive groups will have their PACs. These PACs will still exist. And these PACs are still going to do work to elect the Democratic nominee. So even if Bernie's not personally taking on a billion dollars, if he's raising let's say half a billion or something like that, there's still going to be probably a billion dollars worth of money or more flying around out there that will um, support him. And the easiest thing I've said to the Bloomberg supporters is they, they want him because of his money. He said, and I don't necessarily trust him, but he said that even if he loses, he's going to continue to pay his staff to work to elect the Democratic nominees. And so... That would be nice if that, it happened. Yeah, and that doesn't... And, and he said he's committing $6 billion to that effort. So... You don't need Bloomberg to have his money. His money will run whether it's him or not. And, I mean, frankly, he's not performed well in any states. And this is uh, not a casino. It's an election. And if you can't get votes, you can't win. So um, so I think that it's better that his money might stay in, but then he doesn't because he doesn't seem to be someone that can build a coalition to, to win. And I don't know how you can beat Trump if you can't even win the Democratic nomination.
2: Uh, let me ask you a kind of a related question. Have you heard anything about people checking their their uh, registration? Have you seen any shenanigans uh, visible uh, on uh, Florida uh, registration? Uh, no,
7: not yet, uh, personally. Um, I, I do have people that I, I make sure to help them. Things are up to date, but things have been above board. But there's a lot of groups and organizations out there that will be watching
2: that be available
7: to help. So we're going to keep watching. If something goes down, we'll be there to help.
2: Oh, that's good. Um, I was just wondering, uh, any uh, prognostications uh, for uh, the upcoming uh, Super Tuesday? Uh, you feel good? Understand your chances, or?
7: Yeah, I think Bernie's going to win overwhelming amount of delegates on Super Tuesday. Um, he might lose a few of the more kind of Super rural or southern states, but he, but states like California is going to have a blowout. I think there's a good chance he's going to eventually take Texas later this month as well. So, um, I think it's a good, that's a good thing. I mean, the only thing I think is a potential danger that could upset his nomination is if the party really moves against him to uh, try to use the super delegates to to take the election away. But if they do that, I really believe it'll be the end of the Democratic Party.
2: Do you, do you really, you know, I mean, we've seen the historic record. We know they've had their thumb on the scales before. Uh, the trial revealed that they regard themselves as a private entity that you can, mm-hmm. uh, you're free to give money to, but don't expect any uh, huh, any fair play. Um, yeah, they have no this,
7: obligation, yeah.
2: Jeez. Uh, do, do you think they're going to try that kind of crap again? What's your, what's, your, what's your gut tell you?
7: I think that people are organic beings. They move in the direction of energy. And the thing is that right now there's energy that says you should stop Bernie, right? I mean, CNN had a headline the other day, Bernie or Corvanus like, we can't seem to stop either, right? And it's like, okay, so you're <laughs> being your bias, right? So there are definitely elements that are going to do that. But the thing is that I think that eventually – I'm already starting to see it from, like, say, Warren supporters. Like, there's a there's a, a cooler head prevailing. It's like, wait, 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 wait. Trump's the enemy, not Bernie. And the thing is that he, he might not be some people's first choice, but if he is the nominee, okay, let's accept that and let's beat Trump because the fact is that the left en mass has been focused on that in the past few years. So I think that cooler heads will prevail.
2: Good. I'm glad to hear that um i i'm uh i was wondering have you uh have you talked to anybody that has been uh, uh that's basically scheduled to be a delegate i know the races for delegates are, are coming i know up a few people have
7: applied yeah yeah i know a few people have applied i had the
2: good to fortune be to be invited to go out to the denver convention uh as a blogger and my wife was an edwards delegate and uh, I'm, I'm real curious. Uh, uh, I, I have a, a colleague, a good friend who's running as a, a, a Bernie delegate here in Martin mm. County. So I'm, I'm hoping that she'll get some traction and, and pull that away. Because, of course, uh, several of the other entities uh, that we know are running are, are, let's say, they're in the bag for Biden or worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, sir, any, yeah, anything think- else that we
7: should know about Um, what's going on out in the St. Pete area? um, You know, we're just rocking and rolling. Um, If you want to follow Pinellas Democratic Socialists of America, they can see the kind of work we're doing. Um, I would say that you know, provided that we have a popular nominee like Bernie get in, I just hope that everyone commits a significant amount of their time this year towards pushing him towards joining a campaign effort towards making sure that we do what we need to do to make sure Trump can doesn't get reelected. And that's, that's the last thing I would say. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you so much, sir. I'm so glad you could come on and, uh, maybe we can talk to you again after, after the Florida election and uh, primary and, and uh, see what your take is then. Thanks again, buddy. Yeah. Okay. You have thank a good. Okay. Bye-bye. bye-bye. Okay. Next up, my friends, we have Mr. Edwin and CISO, who is, uh, from the uh, the Sarasota area if i'm not mistaken Edwin welcome.
8: Rick, so good to hear from your voice. How you doing? Thank
2: you brother. Thank you so much. And and we look forward to hearing your perspective because you're a man with a great depth of analysis and uh, I have a great deal of respect for you. What what are you seeing and what are you hearing sir as you go out and uh, uh rouse the the democratic vote?
8: Well, i think the the concern really is, the tension is, are we doing what we need to in order to energize our base? And then there's the contention of, are we going too far? I think that's that's the primary question of Super Tuesday. That's kind of what people have in play. And for a, a while now, you know, I've I've been on the progressive side of things. You and I have had chats. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you know, going back to 2000 uh the anti-war I think we met 2004 there. <laughs> yes. And and you know, I've seen how this dynamic has gone back and forth over the years, you know, the Kerry and, and um Howard Dean fight of 2003 uh, and 4 then moving on to the 2006 midterm elections and the sort of the rise of Howard Dean as a DNC chair and how that played into the 2008 election. And uh, the thing that I think we need is, like, how do we judge whether we're going too far or whether we're being too conservative? You know, what what gives us a sense of of grounding? And how do we use that to be more understanding of one another? Um, So let me me kind of uh, break down what I mean. Sure, Um, sure. So in, in 1993, you had Clinton come in with a health care push. And a lot of people, including uh, Bernie Sanders, didn't feel that the bill, the health care bill, went far enough. And there was a push then uh, for single-payer. And there was a big uh, conflict between the Clinton third-way uh, model and the, the sort of single-payer activism model. Like, go, go for what your dream is, what you really, really want, and that will position you for negotiations. The challenge is, is that Clinton entered that week because he, there was no majority in 1992. So he didn't even have a majority of the, the country behind him. And so it was very hard. They had a whole bunch of issues with how they they developed healthcare. care. They kind of were very insular within the the executive. that involved the the legislature a great deal until they kind of had their program together. And then when they they rolled it out, they did they they had a lot of of people who were unhappy with with what they produced. There's a lot of negotiation. Uh, there was of course then this this other piece. I think though it's it's lost that whether it was really helpful to have single-payer or not um, in, that, in that debate. Like maybe that was all more Hillary's fault. You can, you can say, all right. Um, but we see that dynamic play out then. The next big time that it happened with health care was in 2009, and Obama managed health care differently. He really stressed development through the legislature, and he held the presidency back. You know, he was supportive of the conversation in general, but he really wanted the legislative process, the constitutional process, to, to run the negotiations. And that definitely built a lot of strength for his program. Um, in fact, in the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, which is sad she didn't get credit for this, but she passed health care with a public option through the House of Representatives. Where it died was in the Senate. Uh, which is a moderating body of of the republic. But in 2009, you also had the single-payer push. And that was the beginning of a dynamic within this more modern period of the left retaking the idea of we, we should take the most left position, like what we really, really want. And if we negotiate, it will help shift the conversation to the left. But I think it's hard to argue that as a result of that in 2009, that that either helped the public option or that it helped us in the 2010 um, elections. Uh, Because within that fight, the the presidential approval ratings went down, not only when he couldn't meet uh, healthcare activists, but labor activists were disappointed, environmental activists were disappointed. Uh, economic justice, um, who wanted uh, debt forgiveness of mortgages instead of debt forgiveness of the banks. I'm uh, not that debt forgiveness, instead of loans to the banks, debt forgiveness for homeowners. That dynamic played into the, the 2010 elections. So the, the, that's sort of what's in the background. And I think when you look at South Carolina, what a lot of black uh, civic leaders, are really concerned with is that same dynamic playing again where we're going for something that is goes way beyond um, what is viable uh, within the political situation that we have in the Senate and in this nation now. Mm-hmm. You've heard this, this conversation, I'm sure. What are your own thoughts on it? Like, I'm sure you've heard well, this dynamic. Uh, I, I, I have. And so the way I like
2: to think of it is uh, essentially a, a couple threads. Thread one is, I think, the more progressive discussion, the more articulation of what is literally there before our faces. People can't afford to be healthy. They can't. And this, this, uh, this fake narrative that, well, we all love our private insurance. And and you know, it, Michael Moore, I thought, illustrated that point quite easily and and visibly when he basically said these insurance companies exist to take your money and then come up with schemes to prevent you from getting healthy. Uh, so, so that's one thing. So I think that's an important position to be articulated. And, and any progress we can make toward that ultimate goal, the only way to get to that goal is by articulating that dilemma. I think Thank that you. half measures like we saw with the Obama plan – which is basically a freeze-dried, refried version of the, the Mitt Romney plan for Massachusetts, which, which basically made sure not to offend the insurance companies, made sure not to avoid, uh, not to uh, annoy pharma, uh, is is clearly a, a, not even a half measure. I think it's a tenth measure. Now, is is it, is it a bad idea to to aim high? And then ultimately not quite succeed, because I don't think there's anyone uh, except the right who says things like, well, you know, if he gets a standard kind of Congress in there or, God forbid, a Republican Congress, nothing will happen. Well, if that's the case, isn't it still better to aim for something that will give actual uh, improvement to the American health condition? Now, is aiming high a bad idea? I don't think it is. And certainly there are plenty of naysayers, I think that argument, the naysaying argument, that sit down and shut up, uh, it's aim small, we don't want to rock the boat, we don't want to annoy them. Oh, my God, there'll be so many unemployed people from the insurance companies. I think that's a fake argument because ultimately we know one thing is true, that as long as this country is uh, ruled by corporate interests, there will never be an end to corporate control of big pharma, of big medicine, and of insurance companies. So that being said, all that's going to happen at best is going to be improvements. Maybe finding some access, maybe finding some some finger hold on access, and that's a good thing. And I think the only way you're going to move to that is not by aiming low, but by aiming high. And ultimately, what kind of Congress anybody gets, whether it be God forbid, Bloomberg or uh, someone like Senator Sanders or Senator Warren, it's going to help the condition. It's going to improve because we are now talking about something that until a few years ago wasn't discussed. We, you know, the old lie was we have the best health and care of anyone on the globe, which is clearly obviously now not
8: the truth. Yeah, I think these are really good points. I, I think the, what happened in South Carolina has to do with the Senate race. Um, uh-huh. And the question being, if we have a, a Democratic president, it's sort of like, you know, when you play chess, like, what's the next move? Well, let's say, you know, you've got to play it out. Let's say um, this candidate or that candidate are the nominee. What then happens on the board, right? Because the next thing is is we've got to get a Congress elected um,
5: so the right. question
8: then is, if we have, like, I think um, even a conservative estimate of Bernie's um, plan in terms of how much you have to increase the federal government. Let's start first by saying the savings on on private health care, like our costs of private health care are somewhere in the $50 trillion, uh, um, over 10 years cost, right? So the idea yeah. of spending... Um, 50 trillion. Um, I'm sorry, 31 trillion, and getting you know, basically 19 trillion in people's pockets. That makes sense. The problem is you still have to elect a Senate that is going to. You know, you got um, Doug Doug Jones in Alabama who is running, and when he gets asked by Alabama media, so do you support Bernie Sanders? The, even some moderate, like estimates are are sixty. you go with a conservative estimate of fifty trillion, right, for all of Bernie's yeah. programs, right. uh, the Green New Deal, you know, a, a whole bunch of things like the, the education program, all of these things, right? And that candidate has to say, no, I don't support that, and, and then he's got to get away from that. Then you create a soundbite and and a difference. Now what happens when you go to Arizona, you go to Colorado, you go to North Carolina, you go to Maine, and Senate candidate after Senate candidate is having to fight um, not just Donald Trump's uh, billion-dollar national uh, media and all the earned media he's going to get just by being ridiculous, but then they also have to fight their Senate opponent. Then they've got to redo their own fundraising and their spending, but then they've got, they, they don't benefit from Bernie's spending because it runs counter to what, is, what they're running on in their state. And that's, that's, I think, what you saw in South Carolina is you saw people just not believe that, that if we end up in a situation where we're making promises we cannot keep, then that is far more dangerous to their organizing than if they go with Biden, who you know, the, the, one of the problems of uh, being fair to Biden is Obama promised 2.7 trillion in new spending over 10 years, right? Yeah. I think Biden is at about 5 trillion right now uh, over 10 years, so he's he's more ambitious. But you know, a lot of people now look at that as um, center right almost, um, rather than even centrist. Um, and, and so there, I think it's an understandable concern. Um, if you're worried about winning the Senate and getting anything done, um, uh, justice reform done, I mean, so many things comprehensively. South Carolina has a, uh, one of the fastest growing immigrant populations in the country. Uh, so comprehensive immigration reform, you have a lot of people who are really worried that, that going that far could really end up hurting Uh, their communities in the long run.
2: I think you make a valid point. And I think it's sort of the the strategy is, do you weigh congressional tactics versus national tactics? And I think that's a good subject to discuss further. Let me invite you back next week to continue this discussion. And I want to give you a little more time next week, because I think you make a valid point. point. And, And, you know, whether you look at, do we, do we let, National policy get in the way of uh, what's called durable in Congress, or do we aim high right. and and you know hope that we can drag Congress along? Because unfortunately, the 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 well, let, let's let's continue this discussion next week. <laughs> Edwin, thank you so much for joining us. You never fail to bring thank us you, an bro. important insight to the to the multiple challenges we face. Thank you, my brother. We'll see you next week. Okay. Okay, bye. Ladies and gentlemen, next up, we've got Miss Janine Moloff, our justice correspondent. Janine, welcome. How are you doing tonight?
9: I'm I'm good. I'm good. This week, I'm going to talk about a case that's heading that the Supreme Court is going to look at the Cela law case, and how it ties into a unitary executive and another theory which is called which some call a new originalism and it deals with the view of the constitution as an originalist doctrine so i'll just get right into it
2: please it's do the trump
9: administration okay
2: the, the uh, old originalism <laughs> was bad enough but this new originalism that's got to be scary not a bit
9: yeah the, the new originalism really is just an excuse for conservative activism. It's not truly originalist doctrine, and I'm into that. So, as the Trump administration plows through the Bill of Rights, destroying anything deemed in the way of a presidential destroying anything deemed uh, an, an obstruction for a presidential monarch, the legal profession has crafted and pushed the bogus model of the unitary executive. While sounding rather benign, this model of presidential dictatorship or an elected absolute monarch represents the incursion of a malignancy on the very notion of democratic rule itself. The subject is so worrisome that I've created multiple shows discussing this growing threat. Though not originated with Trump, the Donald, as he's called, represents not only the logical outcome of this anti-democracy campaign, but the most dangerous product. Trump has joked about becoming president for life and the corporate media Treat rather treasonous desires and eccentricity attributed to a pushy New Yorker businessman. That attribution is far more dangerous than most realize. While most legal commentators blithely claim that such worries are mere hyperbole, they ignore the simple fact that, namely, that dangerous threats to democracy often begin with Supreme Court cases or SCOTUS cases that on the surface look rather boring and, and once again, falsely benign. Uh, Supreme Court cases often examine the theoretical rationale behind the complaint, law, or in this instance, the dual constitutional theories of the unitary executive and what some call now the new constitutional originalism. As I've discussed before, the theory of the unitary executive not only claims that the president is the sole authority over the executive branch, but it goes further and states that the president is the executive branch. That is very worrisome. The conservative theorists go further and state that any limitation on a president regarding any legally created agency, again, created by congressional legislation, is an encroachment on the unitary executive. Now, Ian Milhauser wrote um, basically on the Supreme Court on this uh, SEAL law versus CFPB case. And basically, the CFPB is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And uh, they're really see they're going to consider it this week. And the question is, uh, is the president allowed to fire the head of the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, at will? And that question doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is. And the stakes, the, the repercussions from this case, case in terms of increasing presidential power are enormous. Um, and, and the reason why, very simply, it, is this. Um, the CELA Law case is, CELA Law is a law firm that was being investigated by the Consumer Financial Protection uh, Bureau. And CELA Law was investigated for allegedly engaging in unlawful acts or practices, they call it, regarding advertising, marketing, and the, or the sale of debt relief services. Now this lawsuit is the Seal of Law Firm's hail, what this guy says a hail mary attempt to end that investigation. They're trying to see to it that the entire agency that was tasked with conducting the investigation is basically struck down and dismantled. Now that's probably not going to happen, but what they ought, what the court is going to look at is whether or not an independent agency such as the CFPB. Uh, Whether or not that director of an independent agency can be fired at will, like agency like cabinet heads, or will he continue to enjoy protections where, right now, that particular director can only be fired for cause, not at will, and so, you know, it, it goes beyond just the CFPB director. There's Federal Reserve governors, members of the Federal the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. They both serve also in independent agencies. And what this is about truly is that these agency leaders on these independent agencies, they have a certain amount of job security because, again, they can be fired by the president but only for cause or for what they say, inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. They cannot be fired at will just because the president doesn't like them or doesn't like their particular viewpoint. Now, the legal theory behind this is that the CFPB director or really a director of any independent agency shouldn't be given this kind of job security. Uh, That it's a constitutional matter. And since the president has the authority to oversee the CFPB, that that should include the power to fire its director and not have to actually give cause. So basically... This is really about whether or not the Supreme Court is going to allow the president or any president to have this amount of power. Because if they strip these agency heads for these independent agencies of any reasonable job security, then that could open the door for greater presidential abuse of power. And you could imagine the Federal Reserve, for instance, members of that if they were able, if the president was able to fire them at will the the second they didn't fluff up his ego or agree with him on anything they would be gone or if perhaps a sitting president wanted uh, for instance the federal reserve to do something that would prop up the stock market right before the election to boost their chances to be reelected Once again, that type of manipulation would be easier for a president to get away with, and it's truly frightening. So we go to this idea of the unitary executive, which I know I've talked about before, and this goes back to another case of Morrison v. Olson as well, and back to the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Scalia is like the gift that keeps on giving, but it gives bad things. So basically, CELA law is could be considered, according to Milhauser, quote, the culmination of a conservative crusade that began more than three decades ago. And Milhauser points out that this began with Antonin Scalia's dissent in the case of Morrison v. Olson. And Morrison v. Olson dealt with the independent council law. Now, Morrison, that case, the independent council law expired in 1999, but it provided for independent counsel, so basically a type of special prosecutor, but the special prosecutor could only be fired for cause and the Supreme Court upheld the law in a 7-1 decision and Scalia was the only one who dissented. Now Scalia's dissent is flawed and it is dangerous. Um, Scalia claimed, based on the unitary executive model that quote the executive power shall be vested in the president of the United States. End quote. Now according to Scalia, that meant, and again, quoting Scalia, quote, does not mean some of the executive power, but all of the executive power, end quote. And so Scalia was saying, you can't have a pro- an independent prosecutor, a prosecutor that's independent of the president, because the president is the head of the executive branch. And basically, Scalia felt the federal officers have to serve at the pleasure of the president or be held accountable to some official that also serves in the will of the president. And so this dissent in the Morrison case helps set the stage for the ultimate unitary executive, or really what I call the idea of president as a dictator or an elected monarch. So Scalia's Morrison dissent laid out the unitary executive theory. And again, this is the idea that Not only is the president on top of the executive branch, the president is the executive branch. And excuse me, this even though the other justices at the time did not agree with him, Celia's dissent in the Morrison case really helped spawn a what you could call a cult regarding the unitary executive to the extreme. And one of these cultists is now on the Supreme Court, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And during his confirmation hearings in 2016, one of the things he said is that he wanted to, quote, put the final nail in the Morrison majority opinion's coffin. So basically this is the idea that, you know, how can you have an independent counsel if they're able, if the president is able to fire them at well? Um, the Trump DOJ under Barr also filed a brief arguing that the CFPB director's job security was unconstitutional. Now, of course, Barr realizes that the entire idea of an independent counsel whose job is usually to investigate an abusive or corrupt president must have that job security. Otherwise you have the equivalent of a litigious Fox guarding the head house. But again, they went through it. Now there are a couple of big questions in seal law and you know, one of them dealt with past president. Now the Roberts court, um, didn't really make too many changes in this, um, Chief Justice Roberts has taken a really incremental pr- approach, but he still favors the unitary executive. Now, they've talked about the past precedent in Humphrey's Executor versus the United States. This goes all the way back to 1935, and the Supreme Court basically said Congress could create independent agencies led by multi-person bipartisan boards, and that the members of these boards could be given the same type of job pro- job, uh, job protections, job security protections, in other words, they could be fired for cause, but not at will. But there's a small loophole, and conservatives just love using the concrete letters of the law as those pesky legal principles might actually support the cause of justice. And the loophole is the CFPB isn't led by a board. It's led by a single director. And that's what the Trump administration and AG Barr is trying to pull and basically saying that in the in in the seal of law brief that the president could just fire this director at will because, again, it's not a board. Now, again, this sounds like a lot of double talk, and I, I realize this, but really what you're talking about is this. When you're talking about independent agencies that have been created by congressional action, they were created, and in fact, usually, especially the independent council law, for instance, to be just that, independent of an overreaching president. And if the people at the top of those independent agencies don't have at least a modicum of job protection, such as, yes, it can be fired for a cause, but not at will, then you're not going to have an independent agency that has any sign at all. The agency would be reduced to a fawning shadow of its former self, and that basically is what is really at stake here. Uh, you can see the handwriting on the walls because what this is really about is not only attacking the independent council law in Morrison. This isn't just about seal law. This is really going back to more, the Morrison case. But it's also about the idea that any independent agency, according to these unitary executive fans, should be under the authority of the president, according to them, as the president should be able to fire any agency head at will. Uh, and that would just basically mean that they could, if they dare disagree on anything, they're gone. Now, the implications for this, again, are very enormous. Um, and it's, it's quite dangerous. Um, you know, this is, you've got different agencies that are considered independent agencies, the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communications Commission. Um, these are led by bipartisan boards. Members serve staggered terms. Um, these independent agencies give the public a little more say. Um, and once again, Morrison v. Olson is really at the core of it. The CELA case is just a little step towards putting the final nails in the Morrison case, in my opinion. Now, Scalia, again, the gift keeps coming the fairy tale of originalist construction. Based on this unitary executive, these people also believe, through Scalia and his writings, that the Constitution, quote, provides that executive power shall be vested in the President of the United States, end quote. Now, for Scalia, this doesn't mean some of the executive power, but all of it. And this is a unitary executive unchained. and Scalia's dissent goes beyond the Morrison case. The ramifications, though, between the Sela Law case and the Morrison case, if they were kind of overturned, it could destroy the independence, They said before, of the Federal Reserve and other independent agencies. The parochialism of Scalia's views and how arch-conservatives have deified these opinions um, basically has turned the, uh, the late Scalia's dissenting opinions it's become like a religious text to them. And, you know, the question is, is Brett Kavanaugh the joker that was appointed to help create a presidential dictatorship through reversing the Morrison decision? I suspect one of the reasons Trump wanted Kavanaugh is because of the Morrison case and Kavanaugh's very uh, strong feelings about that. Um, Kavanaugh heard a very similar lawsuit actually as a lower court judge and um where it presented the same case, whether the CFPB could have a single director who could be easily fired by the president. Um, and Kavanaugh agreed the director had to be held accountable to the president, but he said the CFPB could continue to operate um, with the president able to remove the director at will at any time. Uh, you know, once again, this is about allowing the president to just run roughshod. Not only over these independent agencies, but if you carry this thought logically throughout, you can see that this would be kind of an indirect way of dismantling a lot of legislation that was created and, you know, an agency was created to help implement certain legislation, especially liberal legislation. You could just say, well, I'm going to keep firing these top agency heads at will, part like a house of cards. And I think that's really what this is, you know, about. And, you know, again, the obvious danger in this chain of events, which the late Scalia began, Kavanaugh will most likely attempt to complete, is the establishment of a unitary executive, which is code for a presidential dictatorship or an elected monarch. The theory is that agencies created by legislation can be theoretically overturned by rendering the agency leadership beholden to the presidential whim. That's the at-will part president wouldn't have to cite a legitimate reason to unseat an agency head. Such removal could be justified because it's Tuesday, and Trump doesn't like Tuesdays. This level of unchecked presidential power could clean out every agency. Experts in multiple subject matters would choose to leave rather than bow and scrape to an elected monarch. I could see Dr. Anthony Fauci, for instance, leaving the CDC because he's not being allowed to tell the truth about the coronavirus, for instance, these experts in all these fields would would basically leave rather than risk their professional credentials. And those positions would be filled by political pretenders and we would have a a larger government of incompetence. Uh, And that's really very dangerous. Um, The very freedom to offer sound advice would be sacrificed on the altar of the unitary executive, Now, the problem with originalism and Scalia's idolatry, so this is kind of like a domino effect. Scalia's idolatry of this unjust philosophy, basically, originalism is the excuse used by conservatives to deny rights to anyone not mentioned in the original Constitution. In other words, anyone not a white Christian male who owned property speaks to something far more dire than one single Supreme Court case. It speaks to a judicial philosophy that would limit the rights of democracy to a small elite group and this is truly dangerous um, once again the uh, Saul Carnell wrote in Dissent Magazine excuse me, uh, an article wrote, uh, titled The New Originalism A Constitutional Scam and in this one he basically accused the new originalism um, that's really been pushed since Reagan by right wing scholars, judges and um, other groups uh, ge- and generous support from conservative offenders, he basically says the methodology is murky, the practices, quote, are dubious, and, quote, the historical foundations are shaky at best. Now, this was written in 2011, actually. In 2011, Saul Cornell was a Paul and Diana Gunther, Diane Gunther chair in American history at Fordham University and a senior research scholar in residence at Yale Law School. So he was first a historian. And then he was going to law school. And he dealt with the question, is the Constitution a living document or a dead history? Now, we know this Scalia felt that it was basically dead. He said it often enough. It's dead, dead, dead. And he said that because he wanted to keep this limited purview of democracy. You know, we've been had a lot of myths about the founding fathers, but let's be honest about it. The Founding Fathers really didn't intend for the blessings of democracy to extend beyond white Christian males, especially that own property in the elite, because everyone else is regarded as rather incompetent. They those ideals, and people decided they liked them. It was kind of like letting the genie out of the bottle. There wasn't much they could do about it, so they kept trying to band-aid together their excuses for limiting democracy. Uh, you know, we may be one of the oldest democracies in the modern era, but we're actually the least democratic. Now, and what Cornell basically says is that there's one, only one group, quote, there's only one group in American society that remains largely immune to the lure of originalism, historians, end quote. And basically he's saying his historians actually consider, you know, the facts. Um, and Cornell calls the originalism, he calls it, and other historians too, uh, call it law office history. Now, the Reagan years triggered the originalist revival. And there was a basically a group of activist judges. And originalism has what Cornell calls out as shaky historical foundation. Uh, the very history that the originalists claim is, you know, in the Constitution actually isn't there. It's a misreading. Um, And and he basically pointed out the fact that, quote, if Madison and Hamilton, um, you know, couldn't agree on interpretation of a document they helped create, and how could 21st century judges claim to have discovered an objective means to find the true meaning? And, you know, once again, originalists and people that push originalism, they do so to limit rights that democracy grants to the average person. They they are elitist and they are anti-democratic forces. Let's just call them out for what they are. the new originalism, according to Cornell, was spurred on by radical conservative groups such as the Federalist Society. And I'd add that groups like the Federalist Society are not merely radical. They are anti-democracy. And Cornell also said, quote, the goal of new originalism is not to constrain judges, but to empower them, to further the agenda of conservatives, end quote. And I do agree with that. So according to Cornell, and I agree new originalism since the Reagan era is a form of right wing camouflage and Cornell calls it it's basically for radical conservative judges to hide behind. The New originalism focus on the public meaning of the constitution. Um, this is about how the new originalism issues original intent. Um, basically, you know, Cornell saying these originalists use murky methodology regarding the documentation of theories that they keep saying are the foundation of their entire practice and subsequent dubious practices. And he calls it an intellectual shell game. And he says that the original meaning of the Constitution, constitutional text, does not have to be subjected to this. The new originalists, he's saying, claim that the original meaning of constitutional text doesn't have to be subjected to the same verification and authenticity rules that apply to all historical documents. And think about that. These new originalists are claiming that you should just trust them that you do not have, they don't have to go through the same verification and authenticity rules of any, of, that all historic documents go through, and that is truly frightening. Um, you know, and he gives an example. The OLC attorney and author of the infamous torture memos John Yu, he subscribed to the originalist fraud. And, you know, Cornell noted that the Founding Fathers denounced torture, which is the very reason for the Eighth Amendment that John Yu decimated with his torture memos under George W. Bush. You know, he, he accused you of basically cherry picking his facts. And, and when you cherry pick the evidence like that, he said he, he cherry picked it to justify any theory. That you deemed worthy, as opposed to viewing all the arguments between founding every argument between founding fathers, including the major conflicts of the day. And the founding era wasn't merely the domain, the domain of an elite few, but we hear about, but also the conflicts between the elites and everyone else. So the new originalists, like John Yu only selectively attended the arguments that favored their present prejudices and ignore conflicts between members of the founding elite. They also ignore the concerns of the common people are considered too simple minded to fully con- comprehend this new constitution. Even though evidence existed even back 200 years ago, that demonstrated just definite understanding of common people in the newspapers of the day. And so there's more here. Basically he calls the new originalism that, that they use for the inter executive. They say they're using fictive readers. Yeah and that modern conservative ranks reduce historic fact to what he calls historic ventriloquism. And this is basically a long way of saying, look, CELA law is basically a way to get to the Morrison decision and, and basically chip away at that so that any president can remove any agency member, independent or otherwise. And it's also an end run around, in my opinion, around the independent council law. And that is truly dangerous. You know, in, in short, the of Law case merely demonstrates the danger of incremental increases in presidential power through the pseudo-legal doctrines of the unitary executive and the new originalism. Both doctrines are rooted in a cynical contempt for popular democracy itself coming from the legal profession and the political class, the professional political class. There's no room for the unitary executive in a functional democracy. There is another term for unitary executive. The king, but didn't he fight a revolutionary war to escape from the very abuses of monarchy? So, to sum up, Civil Law, once again, is a way to get around uh, basically to get to the Morrison case and chip away at that. And once Morrison is overturned or chipped away, then whether it's an independent agency created by Congressional Act, uh, if the president can fire those heads at will. And that president doesn't actually have to dismantle the agency. It would wind up being a de facto dismantling because no agency head will go up against a president that basically demands total fealty and total obedience. And that is the true danger behind the seal of law case. It, it gets deeper and this unitary executive thing is such a fraud, the the new originalism is also fraud. These are tools, these are devices that have been engineered to basically dismantle popular democracy period. Make no mistake about it, conservatives want to reduce democratic representation to only an elite few and no one else. And that's my report. Well, thank
2: you so very much, my dear. As always, top-notch. Top-notch. Thank you. Yeah. Oh,
0: thank you. Why why name. have
2: a unitary executive when you can just call him a king?
0: <laughs>
2: but except well, again, as you pointed exactly. out. But as you pointed out, we we've already done that. We don't want one of those anymore. Thanks again, no. my dear. My <laughs> <I> pleasure.
0: <push> <laughs> okay, have a Sorry, good bye-bye. night.
2: You too. See you next week. Progressive News Network, a new Mercury Media production, where you'll find the voices of actors, the voices of those working to make this a better world. We believe that as we face challenging times, the human spirit can face and surmount the foolish and the short-sighted. Tune in every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, for the live show, or anytime you can. Progressive News Network, found at www.NewMercuryMedia.com slash PNN slash. We have a future. Tune in and build it with us. Underwritten by Florida Media Labs, produced by Rick Spiesack in cooperation with Canary and a Coal Mine Films. Progressive News Network.